Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. In this weekend, we're talking about games that push our buttons instead of the other way around. We are talking about our gaming breaking points. So I know, Rob, you had a, a very a very hard stop breaking point recently with a game. That's what, you know, made us want to talk about this today. Yeah, I've been, um, if you've been listening to Waypoint Radio, if you listen to uh, Three Moves Ahead this week, I've been really enjoying Endless Space 2, and and I was really enjoying it. And there were, you know, there were some issues, and I heard it was a little buggy, but I was having a really good time with each session where, you know, I was just willing to put up with whatever annoyances sort of came with the release version of that game until I hit a sort of show-stopping bug. Uh, that made it impossible to progress a campaign. And this wasn't early in the campaign. This was like start of the end game, right? Where like, no matter any way you slice it, I was probably in the last um, 50 turns of that game. Okay. Out of, out of like, you know, two twenty out of 200 or so turns. Uh, so I was like, I was pretty far along and I was deeply invested in this game. And then I hit this bug and all that progress is is wiped away and and the other thing is this it feel it felt like a contingent bug it felt like it was something that just cropped up but maybe if i reloaded a previous save i could get around it yeah no it 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 cropped up uh again in the exact same place and i couldn't escape it and that was kind of that was kind of it right because it wasn't just that the game wasn't working it's that it had chosen to, to stop working um god knows how many hours into this into this playthrough and at that point, everything just immediately flipped, right? Like, I just went from, all right, I'll put up with this. Like, I'm having a great time with, with each session to, oh, I'm not touching this until I get an all clear. And now my standards for what I'm going to put up with from this game just dropped to zero. Like, <laughs> it's no longer, I want this bug fixed. It's like, come back to me when your shit's together. Yeah. God. That's, oh. That's so frustrating. That is so, so, so frustrating. I think in thinking about this topic, I, I think there's two general categories that will do it for me. And mm-hmm. I am definitely a rage quitter, like at times in my life. I, you know, there's no, no shame in admitting it. I have rage quit many a game. The two things that really do it for me are either something really just disappoints me or there's something that's like a real audiovisual annoyance, like a real like, oh, God, this just this. Oh, I hate this. Like something is super fuzzy or weird or, or just very, very annoying. Mm. And of course, my example for that. <laughs> oh, wow. It feels like 2016 all over again, Rob. It would Uh-oh. be the fucking the fucking witness, the witness. Okay. okay. All right. So the end of that game. I got to the end, not the like super secret ending, but the the normal ending. Uh, I got to the the ending room, basically, the the ending area. And I, you know, I was hate fucking that game. I, again, I'm not proud, but it was, it was true. That's what was happening to that game. I hated it, but I liked enough of it to keep going, keep plowing through. And at the very end, I won't spoil anything, but there's a lot of types of puzzles in that game and this ending area has a lot of like obstruction like you can't quite see things clearly and you can't quite even if you stand at like the right angle and you're trying to make things go there's like a lot of visual noise on the screen that's obscuring your ability to kind of like see and figure things out i'm sure some people think that's brilliant 
I'm sure, I'm sure they do. I hated it so much that even though I put whatever ungodly amount of hours into just, you know, finishing it normally, I just stopped in the last room. I was like, nope, fuck this game forever. This is so annoying. This isn't fun. This isn't clever. I'm not having any enjoyment out of doing the same types of puzzles that I've already sort of figured out how to do and enjoyed those. No, this is just bullshit. <laughs> so that's, yeah, like audiovisual annoyance or noisiness okay. or cloudiness or like clear, like specific, like, you know, like the developers wanted to make this a little annoying for you. Like it's not, it's not just like a challenge or an intellectual challenge. It's, it's meant to be annoying. It was like, read this thing, but we're going to wiggle our fingers in front of your eyes. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and it, d- it didn't feel like a cool puzzle about inference? No. <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> hated it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hated it so much. And like, there, there are ways in other puzzles in that game that kind of do a little of this, but it's not annoying. Like... Th- there's a type of puzzle where things fade off the screen a little bit and you kind of have to figure out, you know, plot whatever move ahead or something. I'm trying to be vague here just in case. Yeah, yeah. Because that is the point of that game is figuring things out. So, And that's fine because there's kind of an aha moment there and you kind of go along from there. It's building off of something. At least it leads to a conclusion. It's not just, oh, you know what to do here, but we're going to make it hard to see. Like, fuck you. Fuck you, game. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so, uh, like, audiovisual annoyance has uh, my weird hang-up, and this isn't really a game-specific thing, but um, whenever, like, the, the sometimes it's the source, sometimes it's to do with, like, an AV setup, but whenever there's, like, uh, lag on audio, and yeah. it doesn't quite sync up with... Uh, with with the visuals that just it drives me berserk like i will i will troubleshoot that stuff for (laughs) ages uh trying to to figure out how how to fix it but i i do think i don't know there's this line that that games like sometimes have to walk where like you kind of do need to keep escalating the challenge and throw it like you know a lot of game design is is like finding new curveballs uh to to throw at the player but there is that point where it stops being like, oh, this is a cool like twist on those other things I've learned to, okay, this is just bullshit. And it's a really like, it, obviously it's a really fuzzy line. It's a really subjective yeah. uh, thing. But I, but I totally get like there are those moments where, okay, I'm not having any fun anymore. Um, I think for me, sort of a perfect example is that one of my favorite games is Prince of Persia: The Sands of Time. Ah, yes. And I, I think that, like, I think that's a near perfect game. Um, it's it's just so it's so gorgeous. It's well written. Um, it's escalation of difficulty and introduction of new mechanics is is really really good. Uh, sort of the the language of its puzzles is very consistent, and uh, none of them are like too extremely difficult. It's, it's really kind of. Uh, you know, doing it's basically an uncharted game before uncharted. Nice. Uh, in, yeah. in terms of in terms of what it's what it's doing. And then they decide to make a trilogy out of it. And I think Jordan Mechner wasn't involved uh, after the first game. So now it's just like, how do we take the sort of perfect self-contained story and and add a bunch of stuff to it? And the answer is they just they add a bunch of shit to it. <laughs> and 
I remember playing the third game and what they introduced in that game were basically these extended gauntlets where and it could be it could be jumping puzzles, it could be combat, it could be both. Uh, I think there were a couple racing sequences. But what they did was, okay, well, here's what's going to be hard about it. Um, there's not going to be any kind of checkpoint for like 10 minutes. Mm. Like, you're just going to have to be perfect for an extended period here. And it's going to get really hard at the last second. And if you don't perfectly like, stick that landing where it gets really intensely difficult, then you're going to be kicked back about five minutes and have to do it all over again. God. And, you know, I feel like there was a time when this was actually really conventional game design, yes. right? Like, we were, we were kind of used to this. Like, this is basically how I remember every NES-era um, platformer. Yeah. It's just being this, this kind of, like, with the exception of Mario games, I remember them being this kind of, like, uh, you know, this kind of hellscape. <laughs> so I'm, I'm used to this 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 motif, but by the time Two Thrones came around, these kinds of difficulty spikes, these these points where they were just sort of set up to design, they were just sort of designed to cause the player to fa- fail at a certain point. Yeah, I was just so over it, and I just I can't I can't stomach it. And, I, and honestly, I think this is why I probably bounced off Demon Souls so hard. Is that yeah. for me? It kind of felt like, um, okay, die once, learn about that thing, go through again. Now you know about the thing, you avoid the thing, but you still you still really have to like pay attention to get past the thing you now know to expect. Then you hit the next new challenge that you haven't been prepared for. Chances are you're going to get hosed again. <laughs> and so it just kind of felt like this, you know... It was basically an entire game made out of sequences like that, where it's like, okay, we're going to put you on this tightrope, and then we're going to surprise you with a bunch of stuff while you're up on that tightrope. And if at any point uh, you fall off, you go back to the start. And I just couldn't handle that. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> For the Souls mm, but you, games but you love general. those games. But I, I loved Bloodborne. <laughs> I love Bloodborne and yeah, I mean this is obviously another game I was going to talk about here, but Dark Souls 3, which I put 60 hours into, That's right. I just and including those 15 hours at one boss, like 15 in-game hours at one boss. I was like a week. I was stuck at a boss and just grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. And then went through the next literally third of the game in the next two hours because I was so over leveled then at that point. But like that ties so far into my feelings of disappointment, like specifically with that game, uh, because I did all this stuff for this cool quest that was supposed to make uh, another boss like really easy to kill. There's this guy He's all over the game in all these weird places, and he's really funny. He's like this funny guy. He's he's the Onion Knight. He's in this weird armor. He's like, oh, ho, oh. you know, he has this whole <laughs> shtick about him, and it's goofy and fun and kind of cute, especially for like this very like medieval, you know, gross, nasty, undead shit everywhere kind of game. He's just this goofy dude who can help you out if you help him out in like five different other areas of the game. So I helped him out in those five different other areas of the game. And was, like, really looking forward to having this cool boss fight where he becomes this badass. Like, he transforms or something. I don't even know the whole thing with it. I just know I followed every step. And then I got to that boss. He didn't show up. And I was so fucking oh just my God. 
I was done. I haven't picked that game up in a year because of that. Like, I was done. And I made it through a good two-thirds of the game. I, you know, did a bunch of extra stuff, obviously, and like, nope, that was it. Game, if you are gonna put me through this ringer, if you are gonna make me suffer as much as this fucking game has made me suffer, you better give me the goods. You know what I mean? Like, if you're just gonna disappoint me like that, we're done. We're breaking up. You know, we're done. We are done. Goodbye. Don't call me. We're done. <laughs> yeah, that is the, um, yeah, whenever a game doesn't deliver on that, and, and whenever stuff like that happens, to me, it almost always feels like the game bugged on some level. Like, yeah. And I think it was an actual bug on this, in this process or, or something. I don't know. I thought I did everything right. Like he, he showed oh. up in all the other areas or whatever. So it was like, come on. There was a, um, and okay. So some of this is my fault. This, so this was a lot easier to have happen to you, uh, back in the days before like lots of auto saving PC games where you're yeah. sort of expected to manage all your saves yourself. Yeah. Um, but I remember in the longest journey, uh, where my playthrough hit the skids and I was kind of so enraged. I didn't go back for ages. Oh. Um, so there is a puzzle and it's a classic adventure game, Rube, Rube Goldberg solution. Like, <laughs> I think I want to say there's like an electrified train track and like a little like toy duck with a life preserver. I don't know, man. There's, there's a lot yeah. of weird shit that like is going on there, but it all has to fit together. Okay. And you basically develop this little like noose lasso thing to pick something up off an electrified train track or like hit a switch. But the point is, you can put them together in the wrong order. Oh, no. And if you do that, you can't undo it. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> oh, yeah. like now you've built the thing, but actually it's missing a critical component. Um, and so now all the items have been made to interact and they're sort of like jammed together and you can't, you can't fix it. Uh, so like I thought, but the thing is, so the first thing that happens is I just think I'm missing some part of this puzzle, right? So like I have the solution in my hands. I know what the solution is now, but I've, I've built the wrong thing and my solution isn't working. So then I spend the next like three hours trying to figure out what I've missed, right? So visiting every screen in the game like two or three times, like oh. pixel hunting, all this stuff. Um, and then finally, I'm like, there's there's no way, there's nothing, the, the game is stuck. And I look up online and my walkthroughs are all telling me to do basically what I did, except like, like change the order on a couple things. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, let me go back and see what my saves are. And all my saves had been made in the time between me making the thing and discovering the game was broken. So I'd saved over all my old saves and I had to like restart the game. And I was like, no, we're not doing this. This is not, (laughs) this is not happening. Yeah. Uh, But like any, any moment like that where the game, like the, the game has reached an accidental fail state and will not allow you to progress. And it's clearly because like somebody on their end screwed up, right? Or like, or it's, oh, if you go to this place, this thing is supposed to be there and you can interact with it. And it's just never there. Whenever that happens, it's just, it's so upsetting because a lot of, a lot of game design 
is leaving these trails of breadcrumbs. Yes. And they have to lead somewhere. And if they don't, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, if you're, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're friends with someone or when you're dating somebody who's like, just like perennially dishonest. Oh, yes. And after a certain point, you realize like, oh, I actually can't take anything at face value here. Oh god! And then the ground just drops out from under your feet because it's like, oh, like all those things, all those cues, all those things you're used to, like helping you navigate this world, this relationship, whatever. All of those, maybe, maybe there's nothing at the end of that. Maybe it's just like, oh, that 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 was meant to imply something, but it was it was just it was just going to lead you off a cliff. And that's kind of how it feels when when games do this. It's like, okay, well now I don't know, I can't tell the difference between. I can't tell the difference between like your critical path type stuff and then the other cool shit that's in this world that you want me to explore and find. Uh, because as far as I can tell, like some of it's going to be there, some of it's not, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. So I think we're done. Yeah, that is, Oh, that's so disappointing. It's so frustrating and so disappointing. I, uh, I'm getting mad just thinking about, <laughs> about yeah. this. Um, Another thing, obviously, like, that's a kind of a hard stop for me in games is that other kind of disappointment okay. where you really, you have a certain, a certain level of, of expectation. It's not like, oh, this is going to be the greatest thing in the world, but it's like, oh, this will be competent. Yeah. And especially if, you know, maybe you like genres that aren't super, you know, in vogue, like, say, a 3D platformer. Okay. And, uh... <laughs> And and a whole bunch of people who made some of your favorite 3D platformers 20 years ago got together and, you know, they, they did a Kickstarter and they, they did this whole thing as an indie project. And it's like, no, clearly not the same budget, but hell, I've seen some real cool things done on a very low budget in the last few years. So like, yeah, all right, I'm I'm interested. And then this game comes out and it's terrible. And it's really disappointing, and you get so frustrated and disappointed that uh, you don't, you can't bear to play the game a whole lot. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. that happened with ukulele. Let's just yeah. say, let's just say, ukulele <laughs> disappointed me. I don't want to name levels. names, but it's ukulele. <laughs> and I and I and I don't want to shit on. I don't want to shit on Platonic. Like I don't know what their situation was. I don't know. If there were some weird technical wow. limitations. Wow. But I don't know what your situation was. Like maybe there's good reason you made this game I just hated. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just I just don't want to shit on, on somebody who doesn't have like a massive budget. That's all. Like, I don't mind shitting on, you know, somebody who has many, many, many multiple tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to make something. Then you you get to eat some shit, you know? But like if you if you if you have a relatively modest budget, I I understand that things go wrong sometimes. But the problem with that wasn't that uh, you know that it looked shitty or or sounded shitty. It looked and sounded beautiful. It just they didn't somehow for some reason the core ingredients of a good three D platformer, which are movement and level design. I don't, I don't know. They, they're just not there. It doesn't feel good to move. There's a weird power meter that sort of dictates how fast you're able to go, which completely sucks, uh, and like punishes you for wanting to move around the world fast, which is what you do in 3D platformers. 
and the levels are so flat and so boring and and so uninteresting. It's like it's as if like space aliens were given a, a design document. <laughs> wow. And like and it was like here are the basic ingredients, but they didn't know how to put them together. I guess I guess what I'm yeah. saying, Rob, is they yeah, had no. they had a puzzle. <laughs> they had a classic adventure game puzzle and they put the the things together in the wrong order. And that's what happened, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing too where it's like okay, somehow like there's a great deal of competence and knowledge stored in the, like clearly like there's a familiarity here. Yeah. And yet it's completely and utterly lifeless. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, you had all the steps, but you just didn't know how to like impart any meaning or value to it. And it and it's so disappointing because I I I love that genre, and I obviously got very upset and very angry when people were just like, yeah, 3D platformers suck. Because it's like, dude, you don't even know. I know from 3D platformers. <sighs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that kind of stuff is, is, is infuriating as well. I think that's just, but, but to me, I think that that's also partly the difference of, I don't know. It's it's when when competence doesn't add up into anything more than that. Yeah. You know, and it's not necessarily like it's not necessarily a deal breaker. I mean, it is like it, it it's it's it, once a game reveals it's, that it's going to be that shallow, I'm probably not going to keep on playing it. Right. Uh, but it, it it's not my instant hit the eject button type moment. But that is really frustrating when when, when you have games that. Yeah, boy, that that space alien analogy is really really good. It's, <laughs> it, you know, it's you had some kind of instruction set you were working from. You had some kind of familiarity with the thing you're trying to reproduce, and it, it just somehow misses all the heart, all the individuality uh, that made the good versions of this work. Yeah, it is sort of the there's some stuff that you can't really teach. It it kind of has to be felt. Yes. Yeah, it and and I know that's like a weird thing and a weird abstract thing, but it's it's real. I think we all know it. It's like you know, we keep going back to the relationship metaphors, but you know, it yep. is kind of like you just you just know you're in love. You just know, and uh, you just know that there's certain things you can't quantify in uh, in great game design. You can quantify a lot of things, but you cannot quantify a certain leap of brilliance, right, or a certain feeling that something leaves you with. Um, so yeah, that's, that's when something is that disappointing, that's a hard stop for me. Like if a game is just going to depress me and make me sad because it's not good. <laughs> and and that's not all bad games. I, I can enjoy crappy games. Like, believe me, I do sometimes. Um, but like I go in knowing they're going to be maybe a little crappy or maybe a little, you know, whatever. Um, uh, but anyway, it's probably enough grousing. That's enough. We've had our buttons pushed. We've hit, we've hit our breaking point. We've hit our breaking point. Let's go. Let's go to our letters. Let's go to our mailbag. What buttons did you push, friends, uh, in typing us these letters? So our first letter uh, comes from Alistair from England. Alistair writes, Dear Rob and Danielle, sorry in advance for the long email, but I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I'd love to hear your take on it. Really, excuse me, I've realized recently that a lot of my favorite games have been elevated from good to truly memorable by their soundtracks. It also made me think about the role music plays in games and how that role seems to have changed over time. 
In older games, when the visual fidelity wasn't enough to express character moods or ambience adequately, and there was no actual speech, music seemed to be given that extra responsibility to make up for it. As a result, the track seemed to fill a space instead of just be in the background. As visual technology became more advanced, it seemed for a while that big-budget games were trying to mimic film, but have now, recently, started embracing new ways that they can be their own thing. I think it's not just a question of it being good music, but also how it can react or propel things in a way that makes them feel more closely evolved with what's happening. My favorite moments are when the music seems to almost reach out a hand and say, let's do this awesome thing together. One standout example for me was the track Ransacked in Wolfenstein The New Order. Throughout the game, you've been hearing classic tunes from the 60s distorted into Nazi propaganda, quietly prodding you through, uh, through the radio, rather, with reminders that the world has gone to crap. Then, at a climactic point, when it feels like this is all pressing you to a breaking point, you rampage through an amazing sequence in a flaming house, surrounded by what sounds like turbocharged Pink Floyd, as the music itself has recaptured that spirit of defiance and risen up to fight the Nazis with you. It's one of those great moments where I found my playstyle guided by the music, when it was all finished, I was left thinking that it couldn't have gone any better. This might be a long-winded way of saying I think McGordon is awesome, since Doom is pretty much the, that the whole way through, but I'd love to know if there are any soundtracks, composers, or moments in games that really stand out for you. Loving the podcast, hope you're both well. Love from England, Alistair. Oh, well, Alistair, let me tell you about this little game called Prey. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Prey is going to be the new fucking Witcher 3 for this podcast where you have to take a drink. But I think the music in that game is fantastic. And it does create this mood. And often enough, it creates this mood of melancholy that is just beautiful and just perfect for being on this sort of semi-ruined space station that still has a little bit of hope. Like, there's still survivors around, unlike a lot of sort of immersive sims in a dystopian hellscape. Uh, there's still people around, so there's still this this tiny bit of hope. So that every now and then in the game, especially if you're kind of alone in an area, it, it has this like really amazing like not slide guitar riff, but it kind of has this like slightly like very sad like beach rock guitar kind of kind of chill ambiance to it. I hmm. don't have much musical vocabulary, so that's, I that's apologize. Yeah, I because I was like I was surprised to hear you say pray because while there's a lot of things I like about that game, I have a hard time like actually recalling the music, which is oh. is fine. Like because I I do think it's it's really good like ambient type like tracks, yeah. but there's not. I don't know. It's it's a weird thing where I'm not I'm not coming away from that feeling like the music imparts a ton of character to that world. Sure, sure. But, um. I don't know. I'm I, like, like now I'm like, I should have been paying more attention because like I've loved everything else about Prey. So maybe I just need to open my ears up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there. It's not like super hitting you in the face with it, but it, it's often, maybe it's also because I played so much of it and probably hung around places longer than I was meant to. But like every, it's in certain areas, it does have this like chill kind of sad guitar riff that just kind of plays and it's like, yeah, that's right. It, it's complementing both the sort of 60s-ish, or I, I guess it's not really 60s art deco, but like mod-ish style mm -hmm. that, that some of it is is going after. And also just like this, man, I mean, I'm in space and it sucks. And there's a sad guitar and it's, oh, it's 
great. I do love it. I do love it a lot. And I, I, I turn the music that, on all the speakers whenever I can do that in any room. And it's like this oh, like, well, bland techno and it's yeah. wonderful. No, I definitely turn on the uh, the ambient music that's blasting yeah. through the speakers. And it's like really loud, soothing white noise. It is. Uh, but it's, it's good. Um, <laughs> but it's also overwhelming if you've turned on all the speakers in an area. Because uh, then it's just like the entire place is just like throbbing with the sound. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um. I will say the music that starts to play during the credit sequence when you get on the helicopter at the start of Prey, uh, not only is that one of the coolest credit sequences I've ever seen, yeah. and for my money, it could have been 10 times longer. Yeah. Uh, like if they just want to do all the credits through, like I, I'd have been on board with that. Uh, the, but, uh, yeah, I, but the music was really good. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Uh, the, the way they do the end credits in Prey is also phenomenal. And you'll, wait. yes. If you dig around, there's also a song that Danielle Show, Space Lesbian Number One, does. Like, there's actually like a place where she, like, did a song, like, made a song and did a whole performance, and that's also cool. So yeah, right. Um, the and I will say, like, I remember uh, the the music in Wolfenstein is is great. Yeah. And I do remember uh, th- that sequence and and that music, and it is this really cool. Um, I mean, Alistair, Alistair describes it really beautifully there. Uh, it's, it's this moment where the, the, game, the music itself is kind of um, moving into open revolt and sort of like blasting apart this like bland, Nazified take <laughs> on pop music. Um, I think for me, my, maybe one of my favorite game soundtracks is the, uh, the Max Payne 3 soundtrack that Health did. Oh. And I think Kirk Hamilton wrote a really good like piece on this for Kotaku, but uh, it's very, it's very like uh, prog rock uh, electronic in places, but mostly it's like just heavily produced like prog, I I would say. And so for the most part, it's just really effective video game scoring. And so like lots of, you know, really like, you know, throbbing propulsive uh you know rhythm tracks drum tracks uh there's also some really depressing max Payne gets drunk and high and thinks about his shitty life uh tracks which are which are really good like uh just like just some of the saddest uh music that that you'll hear in a soundtrack but the only time that health really sort of come out from behind the curtain and take part in the action is in the airport level toward the end of the game, uh, at which point a track called Tears starts mm. to play. And it's mashed up with this unbelievable uh, shooting gallery. So it's the end of the game. Like Max has been betrayed now by like literally everybody. Uh, pretty much everybody has either abandoned you or been killed. And so you are on like this, uh, this suicide mission to sort of settle the score and you hit the, uh, the airport and the airport terminal. And as you enter this massive shooting gallery, uh, there's an overhead catwalk, um, like a, like a pedestrian, like footbridge catwalk, like running the length of this terminal up above. And then there's of course all the moving conveyor belts, uh, on the ground level. And so you walk in there and it's bustling with life. And then shit hits the fan. Everyone is fleeing in terror. And the music comes up on tears. And it is this... um, 
sort of like wall of sound. Uh, <laughs> it's this wall of soundtrack uh, that is, uh, you know, steady, rhythmic, overwhelming, powerful. Um, and it is the perfect accompaniment to this like five minute long advance through this uh, through this terminal that is not that hard, right? Like, and that's the cool thing. It works because this is the moment in the level where Max Payne is just the Terminator. Like yeah. you, you've, you've maxed that, like you have all the gear you want. Um, you've gotten real good at this game to get to this point. And everyone who gets in your path is just, you know, grist for the mill. Uh, yeah. they're, they're cannon fodder. And so like, you know, you're kind of like just murdering dudes along with this music and oh. it is incredible. Uh, and it, I think for me, like that is the moment where like a really good shooter, uh, becomes, becomes art. <laughs> Hell yeah! There is, there is there is art to uh, to to mass murder sometimes in games, and and that is definitely a moment. Yeah, it's so incredible. I'll I'll just because we have to move on. I'll just throw out a couple couple names here. I think Life is Strange uses music in a beautiful way. Really sets the mood. Really adds character to that game. Uh, Fez, the soundtrack to Fez is beautiful and wonderful and weird and evokes that sort of otherworldliness that made Fez. Such an amazing experience. I haven't I haven't gone back to Fez, but I have listened to the soundtrack many a time. It's real good for writing. And finally, of course, I you know Donkey Kong Country series has real good music. Just saying, it does it, it does really does it evokes like that really really fun and warm kind of sense of adventure that I always found very appealing. And I I won't I won't talk about DKC anymore. <laughs> uh, Today, all right, I want to throw out uh, Symphony of the Night. Yeah, uh, that has an amazing soundtrack that actually does a lot of heavy lifting because like Symphony of the Night, at least the way I remember it is like, oh, it's this really cool like gothic mansion type like cat like castle and like all these zones have these like unique personalities and, and character to them. But when I think back on it, I kind of wonder how much of that is actually just being born aloft by the music, yeah. right? Like, you know, I remember the music for the library and what dramatic, like, space that was in the game. Was it that dramatic? Like, was the pixel art, like, that effective? Like, how much of that was really just, oh, it had this really cool, uh, you know, music track to go with it? Yeah. Sometimes, uh, just like Alistair says, sometimes games from different eras, you know, leaned on the music a little bit. And that's oh, not for a sure. bad thing. Not a bad For thing. sure. Uh, all right. Our next email comes from Paul from Oslo. Hi, DNR. I just saw an example of public sexism from the 90s, and I had to share it with you because I really couldn't believe my ears. I was watching a documentary about Tanya Harding, an American figure skater, and they played the original footage with the original commentary uh, from when she first landed the triple axle and was the first American woman to do that. When she landed, the commentator actually said, good girl. And when she finished, he said, good for her. There, she created her little record. God. That's not good. Uh, in another example, I watched Mission Impossible 2 recently and was directly shocked by the exchange, Ethan Hunt. No, she's got no training for this kind of thing. Mission Commander Swanbeck. What? To go to bed with a man, to go to bed with a man and to lie to him, she's a woman. She's got all the Jesus. training she needs, right? And there's not even a little bit of protest in any way, shape, or form from Ethan Hunt. 
Now, I was 12 when I saw that movie and obviously not particularly informed about anything, but I was also kind of shocked about how little sexism I remember from before. It might just be the kind of movies and sports I watch or don't watch right now, uh, but I have the impression this kind of bullshit is not as prevalent in movies anymore. But I also do realize there are stereotypes and sexist tropes still in place in media. Uh, do you think a standard action hero from today will be as shocking to us in 20 years as these 90s examples are to me now? Well, oh. uh, I think there's a couple things. Yeah. I don't think the action genre exists in the same way uh, that it did in the 90s. Like, in the 90s, like, there's a lot of franchises that are still on some level trying to recreate... Uh, like John Frankenheimer movies, or they're trying to be Die Hard. Yeah. Uh, like the '90s are still kind of in the shadow of like '80s machismo, and so I think you get a little bit more of this. Just, and that's not because like I think things have progressed that far. It's just that uh, this was a stronger genre uh, 20 years ago, yeah. and there was more of the shit being made that fell into a lot of these tropes. Now that said, I remember. Uh, Mission Impossible Two was always dog shit. Like there was like there was <laughs> Is that never the one with a moment. Bellerophant and the whole stupid like Greek myth plot with the virus. I don't even remember I it very well. So. Is it the? It's the one that has him climbing everything. It's the one where like Ethan Hunt they find him and he's like climbing a goddamn like uh, uh, stone chimney. Do you remember oh, this? God. I like remember the, the newer good one where he's climbing a thing, but I don't think I remember. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, weird. no, because the newer ones he's <laughs> climbing stuff for there to be a reason for him to climb stuff. Right. That movie, I think, I think John Moo directed that maybe, and it was like kind of I think when we started to realize he was kind of bankrupt as a uh, director at this point, like he was he, his creativity was spent. Yeah. Um, but no, the way Ethan Hunt is introduced in that movie is he's just climbing a rock chimney. Gotcha. Um, for the hell of it, Jesus like they Christ. just find him doing that, and a helicopter shows up. And delivers him his shitty little sunglasses. God. So he gets his mission briefing. And then, for no reason, it's like the mission, the message will explode in 10 seconds. He whips off the sunglasses, flings them at the camera. It explodes. Mission Credits. Impossible roll credit. Yeah. yeah. It was no. such dog shit. But the other thing is, I want to say, like, the way the female lead is introduced is just as a pure sex object. Oh, God. Uh, for, uh, for, for Ethan Hunt. And so, like, even at the time, and especially coming after um, the first movie, which was, I would say, like, way better about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it was it was real bad. Uh, so, like, I I feel like I probably that like hopefully there's still going to be a lot of stuff that's going to shock us in twenty years because the world's moved on, but everything working in the shadow. Of um, you know, of, of those of those eighties action movies, everything working in the shadow, where on some level, uh, nobody quite realizes how ridiculous Predator was yet. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think everyone, like every movie in that in that vein, is is going to struggle a little bit. Yeah, it it's super weird, right? Because we we live in a world now where. Apparently, and this is, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a weekend project soon, but there's apparently a good Wonder Woman movie, right? Like a cool, big ass, giant budget DC. I'm so nervous and skeptical. No, I know. I know. I've, like, I've just seen I'm good like, reviews. What if, what if people just want it to be good? What if people just want a good I'm, Wonder Woman? So, I'm worried. So bad. I'm worried about that. I, like, I haven't seen it yet. 
but just for the sake of argument, if it is good, then we live in a world where both a, a, a massive budget action hero superhero movie starring a woman both exists and has created protests for men who don't want there to be women-only screenings of a movie about a, a woman action hero. Like, we live in that world now, right? Where it's like, hey, in some ways, it looks like, you know, maybe there's been some kind of progress. And also, that the blowback against that progress is so feral and yeah. and toxic and pervasive and and powerful, even though it's it's pretty clearly a tiny vocal minority. It's a vocal minority of... Uh, incredibly impassioned people who really hate women. So it's God. It's it's hard to it's hard to say whether or not things are are have made progress necessarily, or everything has gotten weirder. <laughs> like like both lines in the timeline have have continued that sort oh, of thing, man. right? Like it's it's a very fucked up and weird thing. I I do think like in in a positive light. I do think uh, that in a movie of the kind of budget that Mission Impossible was made for, if uh, a male character said something that fucking sexist, people would get pissed at least. There were, I, I feel like there would be a reaction to it at this point in life. Like, it wouldn't go unheard of. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't get away with it, that the studio wouldn't get away with it, but at least that I think there is, a, on some level somewhat more awareness about these things. I wonder how much of this is just... So in the 90s, yeah. what you didn't have was everybody being on the fucking internet all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, because I've, I've been on, of two minds about this. Like, because a lot of progress did happen in the 90s. Like, yeah. a lot of things start... Like, the 90s is when gay rights, the, the conversation really starts to swing became uh, mainstream yeah yes yes uh so a lot of things start happening in the 90s and there's a lot of like moves toward like greater uh progressivism and equality and what i don't remember is there being just this endless fucking undertow <laughs> of um like because there there were people because there, there were backlashes back then yeah. but i don't remember them being like endless and like weaponized uh the right. way they are now and i'm kind of wondering is the difference that you know, back in the era of fuck, like Will and Grace or something, you know, you know, yeah, no, no, stuff no, no. like that. It's not a bad. It's not a bad thing. Like I, this is what I did my master's thesis on was like Will and Grace and Ellen, like super fucking mainstream normie ass TV shows that literally normalized like for a lot of people that like gay people didn't have horns and didn't breathe fire. Like honestly, yeah. like it's it it is a, an important touchstone. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. but but yeah, but so what you don't have then though is all sorts of people being able to come together over their mutual resentment of the shit even existing right. and these positions being like offered like back then it because because you know we all existed a little more in like you know in the real world and meat space yeah and so like it was kind of dangerous and uncomfortable for people to be like well you know i don't really like gay people being on tv and like cuz because if in mixed company, you never knew that might blow up in your face. Right. And so, like, you just sort of had to swallow it. Now, it's like, man, I just can't stand all these movies that show women doing anything that I don't think fits their gender role. Right. Does that make me weird? There's a community now, for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> There's a bunch of people being like, no, let me tell you. Not only does that not make you weird, 
you're the only person who's really awake. Yeah, you didn't take the red pill or the blue pill, whatever yeah, fucking exactly. pill it is. I don't even know. Somehow this is going to loop back on the Jews, and like <laughs> this is yep, this is exactly. what's happening. Exactly. And, and so I'm kind of wondering, like, was '90s progressivism just shelter? Like, is it just because right now the goalposts have moved far enough that a lot of bigots really feel they're back against the wall and this is kind of like their last stand or is it just the goalposts haven't moved that far it's just now shit everyone knows how to find stormfront <laughs> right right i stormfront, honestly fuck, 4chan yeah <sighs> weird internet culture became misogynist culture it's it's really it's really so fucking sad and i keep going back to that like whole like margaret atwood thing about like all technology has a good use a bad use and a stupid use. It's like the whole thing about, you know, the axe. And she's like, yes, an axe can be good. You can cut down a tree and, and now you can, you know, whatever, make a cabin out of the wood. The, the bad use is you can kill your friend. And the, stupid, <laughs> and the stupid use is that it fucking falls on your foot and cuts your foot because you're an idiot. And like that times 10 billion with the internet, I guess. <laughs> like... Wow, it's so nice that you can, no matter what you are, meaning, like, especially, like, marginalized people can find real community and, and like, a 14-year-old queer kid can feel like they're not alone. But also, misogynists sure have their own little camp there, too. Like, it's very, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I, I do think, <laughs> look, in 20 years, I think people will find it weird that Emily Blunt was co-starring in Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise, maybe? <laughs> yeah. I'll be like, what, what's he doing here? Why is oh, the lady God, from, why so. is the lady from Sicario need this dude? Yeah. Um, but sadly, Emily Blunt is a finite resource. I know. And uh, we're just limited in, in how many action franchises she can, she can be in at once. Um, although I don't think, I don't think we found that limit, uh, nope. by the way. Oh, uh, I sure I think, haven't. I think we should explore the potential for Emily Blunt uh, to be uh, this generation's like female Steve McQueen. Oh, that would be lovely. Can we make this happen? The fact that that's a possibility is is good. It's very good, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take that shred of hope <laughs> and 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 try to keep that in mind on my <laughs> on my worst days. You know that and and Gillian Anderson. It, it's not like an action thing, but but hey. She's in some really great roles, and the ho the old Hollywood adage of like being thirty two and being over the hill is at least maybe not as I know. There's there's a weird thing with it, like look, it's not going to hurt that she's got a strange agelessness to her, uh, like yeah. that Jill, like Jillian Anderson. You know, at forty, doesn't look entirely different from Jillian Anderson at thirty. At, at right? twenty three, like, actually, yes. Yeah, like, like when she was that young when the X Files started. So yeah, right. She's Crazy. always looked like you know a badass. Um, yeah. But I also kind of feel like she's done a very good job of kind of owning that 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 aging. You know what I mean? Like she's yeah. she's very much out there as like, look. I'm a seasoned veteran accomplished uh you know actor. Yeah. And my like I bring gravitas to what I'm doing and you're either on board or not. And it turns out most people are like, oh, like Jillian Anderson's awesome. Of course we want more of we want more of her. Uh and it's it's this weird thing, right? Where like a lot of 
a lot of actresses of that generation, God, it feels like a lot of them just got erased. Oh, completely. Yeah, there was that old thing about like, oh, you know, uh, you're you're in the fuckable age. It's the whole Amy Schumer thing or whatever. Yeah, the yeah, last yeah, yeah. fuckable day, and then once you're once you're out of that, you can play grandma. Maybe maybe you yeah. can be a weird aunt. You know, like oh, you're thirty. Like it's, it's sickening. Honestly, it's really fucked up. I mean, and it, do you remember how overnight like Meg Ryan disappeared? Oh God, yeah. Like, now, yeah. now part of that might be Meg Ryan did not always make amazing script choices. Sure. Uh, I would say, on the other hand, she was also typecast, right? Like yes. she was, she serviced the needs of an industry that was like, oh, we just, you know, you can be, we need cute, harmless women in a lot of movies, right? right. So call up Meg Ryan. Yeah, true, uh, but it it's it is infuriating. Like just as somebody who, who of course wants good representation for all kinds of women of all colors, shapes, sizes, sexualities, everything, like in mainstream media. So ugh, yeah, it. it Again, I'm I'm trying to hold on to the the tiny beacons of hope uh, yeah. that I see sometimes. Uh, it's not great, but fingers I, crossed. Fingers hope. crossed. Like yes. twenty years, people are like, it's weird that like, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's it's weird that uh you know Emily Blunt and uh, Tara G uh, Henson were like in fewer things uh, back you know twenty hope years so. ago. I fucking hope uh, so. <laughs> yeah, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, weird thing. I also watched a documentary on Tanya Harding not that long ago. It was like sort of a dual profile about her and um, Nancy Kerrigan. Sure. I, I've heard of this becoming like a, a thing again. Like, the, yes, there there is a somewhat recent documentary and, and folks were talking about it at a Yuri on Ice party I went to once upon a time. So, <laughs> of yes. Uh, it was it was really fascinating. Like it is like it. What does get forgotten is what an extraordinary skater Tanya Harding was. Uh, but then there's all these elements of like classism at oh, work God. In, that, yeah. in that story. But then there's also the fact that like, and this is part of the classist, classist thing. Um, Tanya Harding, no sooner does she start to like distinguish herself and like achieve something, then she's surrounded by like shit heels. Oh God. Yeah. Like just on, in every direction. Um, and so like, it's weird, but like, in this documentary, the the thing that's damning is like stuff that emerges is there's stuff that, that she's like almost certainly lying about to this day. Sure. Like she like she portrays herself still as someone who's like an unwitting accomplice to like these really manipulative assholes. And to a degree that's true, but yeah. also probably not to the degree that she she like makes it out to be. Sure. <laughs> but it's this uh but there's this weird like I don't know. It sort of feels like even at that era, there was kind of this like collective. The class isn't the only way to, to 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 describe it. You know, it was like this. Nancy Kerrigan was like all American. She was well to do. She was gorgeous. She was uh, the princess she, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, they and the media played into that so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For and sure. and Tanya Harding was just like this raw talent. Um, but you know, what could anyone really expect from white trash? Right. And that was part of this narrative. Uh, and it's so this, it's this horrible thing where like, you know, Nancy Kerrigan's got a very conventional route, uh, you know, getting her to Olympic stardom. And meanwhile, like Tanya Harding is just like mired in this Coen brothers, uh, in this Pretty Coen much. brothers nightmare. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's so weird. And like her life is basically destroyed by it. And, you know, Kerrigan's obviously wasn't, uh, but right. it's, yeah, it was a really good documentary. Um, it's yeah, that that story has always really fascinated me and been so instructive about 
like the classism and sexism of sports like media like large sports media and how fucking god i i i do like to think as somebody who does watch a lot of women's sports now like i watch a lot of women's mma and a lot of mma in general and i have sensed that there's 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 still a lot of sexism in sports for sure but it feels a little bit less egregious than this than the literally like Oh, good girl. You know, like gross, like what is she, a dog? Like really, really disgusting, like dehumanizing. It feels like there's stuff. less of it, but remember like just the last summer Olympics when oh, God, that woman right. turned in that like record setting uh distance swimming performance. Yeah. And then they cut to the coach, uh, who I think was also her husband, but it was like, yeah. and there's the man behind the there's performance. The man who did it. Yeah, you're and absolutely right. It was like, right. God damn it. It was God. like son of a bitch. Fuck. Like, no, you're absolutely you, like, right. Yeah. Like, literally, you had one job, and that is to, like, cover this moment where this woman achieves this, like, ridiculous athletic feat. Yeah. And they were immediately like, man, there's got to be some dude in this room. The, the dude made it happen. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, you're totally man, right. Here I'm sure I am. Guy, I'm sure the guy's helpful. a hell of a coach. Yeah. But I'm sure he is. Come on. Like, she did it. It's her achievement. Like, ugh. Yeah, yeah, never mind. Sports is still fucked. <laughs> yep. Ugh. Anyway, I guess I guess we should move on. Don't be sexist. There's your advice, sports people. And Mission Impossible 2 always Sucks. sucked. Yep. Goddamn right. All right, here's Paul. Uh, no, sorry. We, that was just Paul from Oslo. This is Mr. Behemoth. Mr. Behemoth writes, Hey, folks, hope you are persisting enjoyably. I just listened to the episode where you discussed the frustrum, uh, frustum culling debate. I'm a couple of weeks behind. Felt compelled to share my own perspective. I have some experience as a semi-professional game dev, also teaching, so the original post did cause me to raise an eyebrow, but not in the way you discussed on the pod, and I think I actually had a very different take on it. It seemed to me that the message of the article was, hey, look at Horizon Zero Dawn, this fancy new game uses all kinds of fancy techniques to achieve its cutting-edge signature graphics. My instant reaction was, what, what, that's a basic technique that all games do, why are they using it to hype this particular game? The ensuing debate seemed to me, uh, to me to be about that, but at least my perspective was skewed that way. And rather than a toxic pushback against dabblers and hobbyists, it seemed to me more like a rejection of hyperbole. Maybe, maybe that was just my echo chamber. I don't know. Anyways, keep up the good work, Mr. Behemoth. Hmm. I think it's a useful corrective. Yeah, it is. It, and it's good to, like... It is good to be wary of hyperbole in video games, <laughs> right? That's that's not a bad thing. I, well, I and that I video do... was one hundred percent put out there to show off Horizon Zero Dawn, and it was sort of presented as like, "Look at this cool thing we do." Yeah, I I still think some of the reaction to that. I I stand by what I said about it being Same. like it felt a little like I'm the, I'm the cool guy. I know the thing instead of, hey, you know what? This is a technique, and no, it's not a revolutionary technique, but it's really cool to see how these things are made, and I would rather encourage that kind of passion and curiosity in game fans. Now, totally, I, I, I'm taking Mr. Behemoth's point here for sure, that yeah, this was, this was a piece of marketing. It was a piece of marketing material, so it's not divorced from hype, and nothing is ever divorced from hype in video games, in big-budget video games anyway. If, you, if you're looking at games that one person made... Uh, themselves it that's a little different but when you're talking about big budget games and the techniques and, and everything about them it's difficult to divorce any of the marketing from hype 
you know, the hype train is is yeah. a part of this industry. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't think this person likes it. Uh, and that it's worth noting for sure. Oh, all right. Well, thank you, Mr. Behemoth, for that. I think it's time for us to talk about what we're going to enjoy this weekend. Rob, is there something you've been watching or reading or playing that's just blowing your mind lately? Um, I wouldn't go that far, but... Okay. I did just watch, because, uh, you know, I enjoyed Rogue One uh, so much yeah. that I decided to watch uh, Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. Whoa, okay, tell me and, about it. Well, it's really good. Um, it's, All right. Well, it's, I don't know. It, I say it's really good, but I think maybe all his movies, with the exception of, um, oh shit, the, the one about... Uh, we just talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, the one about the the couple going through Mexico up to the U.S. border. Oh, um, um I'm I'm googling it's monsters. Fine. It was just yes, called yes, yes. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yep. Um, so I would say monsters, which you mean back in in 2010, may still be the only movie uh, where he had like genuine characters sure. uh, that were like fully developed, and that's because it's a road trip movie about two characters. <laughs> Godzilla does not like Godzilla um, is a it's, it's it's a fine Godzilla movie, but the only real character in it, or at least it feels like the only real character in it, despite having a really good cast, is uh, Brian Cranston's character, mm. who plays sort of the Cassandra of the film, uh, <laughs> who is the first to realize like. Damn it! There's I didn't destroy my nuclear plant. There's something else going on. The government won't tell you. He plays the crazy conspiracy theorist about it, who of course is not crazy. He's one hundred percent right. Uh, he knows something untoward is happening, and he's the only really well developed character. And of course, he gets um, you know spoiler. He does not make it particularly far into the film, <laughs> and at that point, the film is entirely carried by stock characters. You know, there's Brian Cranston's son. Uh, who's a U.S. like demolitions disposal uh, expert, um, and that's like his only character note. Like we know he's got a family back in San Francisco that he loves and wants to get home to, but like beyond that, he's he's just there. Um, uh, Ken Watanabe is in there as sort of the uh, you know the, the Japanese scientist who has a curious take on on how all this is how all this fits together, and that's all we know about him. David Strayhorn. He is just there cashing a check. It's like David Boy, Strayhair, and yeah. you want to wear an admiral uniform for a couple. You're going to be on film, film for like 15 minutes. But the cool with you, have a big paycheck. And he's like, cool, I'll do it. I'll read these lines. And so like the weaknesses of the movie are very much like kind of the weaknesses of Rogue One, uh, where you know the most enduring characters in Rogue One uh, are in some ways it's villains, right? Like, yeah. you know, Tarkin... Um, the whoever the shitty dude is, uh, the, the oh, middle yeah, the manager guy, the villain, shitty yeah. middle manager of evil. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> yeah, like he's he, like, and you know those characters are readable, and two of them are from other films, so this just is already letting them sort of do the heavy lifting. <laughs> but at the same time, Edwards has such an eye for uh, for the image for action, yeah. and and so like Godzilla ends up kind of being a perfect. Uh, film for him because it is all about like you know monsters coming to life and and roaming the earth and like how crazy it is to 
you know, suddenly look up from your with your human scale expectations and see like a monster like rampaging through the city. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it captures this uh, both the real awe, like because this is not an easy thing to do. Like the Avengers, the original Avengers, never for a moment does it feel like. And it doesn't feel like anything remarkable is happening in New York, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's all this shit flying through the city, but it never really feels like, holy hell, I can imagine, like, what that would be like. You know, I can imagine, I can read myself into this scene. And I think what Edwards does in Rogue One, what he does in Godzilla, is that there's almost no scene in which you can't immediately sort of read yourself in. You immediately sort of identify with the perspective uh, on these events that you're seeing. And so... You know, he like Edwards is really at his best toward the end of the film, where there's these two sequences, both of very different tone. Uh, the first is where um, uh, the the wife, uh, the who, who's left back in San Francisco, she has a name, but that's her role in the movie is she's the wife. Sure. <laughs> but she's yeah. she's running for shelter in the middle of this monster attack, and there it's just like there it's just a horror film because it's just. Um, Everything is at a scale you can't comprehend. The world is falling down around you. Um, it's it is very much like Cloverfield. It's just disorienting and and terrifying and awful. And then the next sequence that starts is this amazing, grandiose um, sequence where Demolitions Guy is jumping into San Francisco. Uh, he's doing a high altitude. Uh, drop off a C-130 uh, in the San Francisco. And it's entirely, like, it's entirely silent. It's just scored with this, like, intense soundtrack. And the imagery is just, like, lurid and awe-inspiring and, and, and terrible. Um, and so, like, the movie, the movie has moments like that. And ultimately, that's what I took away from it. And so it's... You know, if you got a good TV and a good sound system, like it's just it's a spectacle um, that is that really sticks with you uh, in some ways. Even if if when you try to grab hold of any particular like plot elements, it just slips away. It's just you know, it just dissolves under uh, examination. But yeah, it's cool. All right, I I just need more good action movies and goofy monster movies in my life. I think it's important i think all right well are you ready rob i am ready all right i saw alien covenant okay okay and and well i really Danielle. liked it i really liked it and i also think like a third of it is a piece of shit that's that's okay. how i feel about alien all right so you know, we all know Alien's my favorite movie ever. I think it's the closest thing that humanity will ever get to cinematic perfection. I don't think it's perfect. I think it's the closest we can get to perfection. Um, I like, I like at least part of every Alien movie. I'm not counting Alien versus Predator because I haven't seen both of them. I think I saw like the ending of one of them, and my mom was like, "What is you going to take her to the prom?" And that was all I remember about that whole thing. Um, so. I really like Prometheus. I think parts of Prometheus are like obscenely stupid. Interesting. But I really okay. like that movie. I like that it was a big budget movie. I like that Ridley Scott is allowed to make massive budget movies about weird fucking 60s sci-fi ideas and with insane visuals like taking God's head and putting it in a microwave. 
and just that's what Wait, they is do. That a thing that happens. Yep. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I need to. I, I'm flashing back here. Okay. When do they throw his head in the microwave? So it's not like a microwave. It's like a yeah. test chamber thing, and the head blows up. But like basically, you went to find your creator. You found his head. You put it in a fucking thing, and it blows up in a microwave. Like that's insane and wonderful. <laughs> I I love that this insane wonderful shit happens in movies with this kind of budget. This does like. Yeah, a Marvel movie will probably never do anything a quarter no. as weird and interesting as this, right? Like, you know, please prove me wrong, Marvel, but let's be honest. Like, movies of this type of budget usually are not this interesting, and they're usually not about, let's find God. What is the nature of creation? What is the nature of humanity? These very, like, 60s sci-fi kinds of very deep, wonderful questions right. that Star Trek, you know, wrestled with over the years kind of thing. Uh, but also with explosions and fucked up aliens and a lot of weird sexual imagery that's very fucked up and weird with with those aliens. Uh, so lots of really great stuff going on there. Okay. Also, Hang again, on. I need to I need to inter- I need to press you on the yes, Prometheus. Please, thing please, now. yes. Because where like I only watched it once, okay. and where it really goes wrong for me mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that to me Prometheus is a comedy. <laughs> like this is this is the fundamental thing like okay there are certain things that are not comedic right like the entire nightmare birthing sequence right. in the right. surge surge tube or whatever the hell it is yeah. is just like straight up like body horror okay. psychosexual like just nightmare shit fantastic but the rest of that movie is this bunch of dumb assholes who should oh. know better Oh, they are so dumb. Just getting fucking murdered <laughs> via their own stupidity. And then and then a lot of it is because this sexy android that they all kind of mistreat and ignore hates them. <laughs> Just utterly hates them. And like nobody susses it out. And so there's this weird like... It's, I don't know, the entire movie just feels funny to me because, like, everyone's horrified and they're all dying horribly. And in the meantime, you're kind of, like, you're kind of there with David the android being, like, <laughs> yeah, we know what's going on here, don't we? And he's, like, yes, we do. Yeah. Like, let's, let's see how this goes. And so, for me, like, all those interesting questions just don't really come out because it's all sort of, tra- it's all in this in this framework of, like, it's actually a really dark slapstick horror, uh, slapstick comedy. <laughs> I mean, I love that read on it because I don't okay. disagree with a word you said. Like, they are really stupid. And, like, there are things <laughs> that just make no fucking sense whatsoever. Like, oh, the black goo <laughs> turns people into zombies. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck is that? Who the fuck decided you need to make people into zombies? That's so stupid. It is, like, hair-tearingly stupid. And it frustrates me because otherwise I really love that movie. Like, I have very complicated feelings about Prometheus, but overall, I would watch it again in a heartbeat. Um, And I feel similarly about Covenant, although for very different reasons. So Okay, so let's, now, now let's get into this Covenant. Thing. All right, ready? Ready? Lay it on okay. me. So Covenant starts out very, very promising. It's about, you know, it's a colony ship in space, and something goes very, very wrong right kind of from the outset on their mission. Like, it starts off with like, oh, fuck. Uh, the spaceship is breaking and they need to figure out something. No, you know, whatever. It, it starts out with the appropriate amount, I think, of, God damn it, with, this corporation sucks. And, you know, it's still like a nice ship. It's not like the Nostromo, which was a, a shitty hauler 
or anything. Yeah. It's like, this is a colony ship. We're going to go colonize and make a corporate colony, whatever. But, you know, something went wrong. Something is bad. And they find another planet that looks kind of too good to be true, because of course they do. And the reason for the leadership being shitty is actually explained. Like, the captain dies in this accident. So this guy who's kind of a shitty you know, first officer, it, it kind of fails upwards a little bit. And that's kind of the reasoning for why they go to this other planet. So it's like, okay, okay, this guy's an idiot, clearly, but like, it's explained. He's underqualified for the job. Fine. All right. They go to a planet and the movie becomes a hammer horror film. Like hammer meaning like Frankenstein in 1935 or, or whatever year, like classic uh, mad scientist film for a while. And then Whoa. it kind of goes back to being alien again for a, a really awesome kind of final third. Is the xenomorph in this movie? Quite a bit, yes. Okay. Actually, a lot. Because um, in Prometheus, that little fucker never shows up until like the last shot. Right, exactly. No, it's it's all over the place. And that was apparently Ridley Scott like heard that comment. from. That's the <laughs> thing he heard from the Prometheus <laughs> criticism was not enough xenomorph. Not don't make people fucking morons. It was... More xenomorph, please. So there's <laughs> a lot like, of xenomorph. I'll give you the xenomorph. Yeah, there's a lot of xenomorph. And the I really like a lot of the, Im the imagery of, of the sort of Hammer movie portion of the movie, which is a very, very significant portion of the movie. The imagery itself is amazing. This is like, this is Alien as a classic horror movie, not as a sci-fi horror movie, but like actual classic, there are monsters and a mad scientist kind of thing, which is amazing. However, the motivation for there being a mad scientist hammer movie is so obscenely stupid that I started laughing in the middle of the theater. And like, otherwise I was like, oh shit, this is a scary, tense horror <laughs> alien movie. But I was like cracking up when it was like the reveal of, of why this happened. It was like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? Like, oh, I, I want you to watch it so we can maybe talk about this one day. But like, it's so dumb. It is so dumb. It is obscenely stupid why that is happening. Like, there there were a hundred ways to write this that you could have still gotten to this good imagery and this good part and this these good things happening, but I just didn't buy it for a second. So yeah, I think okay, I'm, so yeah, I think the, the, the critical question that I have for you, I mean, is this adding anything to... To Alien. Like, and, and that's not necessarily to say, like, does this movie need to exist within this ridiculous canon since the series has been all over the map? But, like, is it a good Alien movie for you? Uh, so, I, I'm, I've been trying to find this piece that, that uh, sort of puts out this, this, uh, this idea. I read it uh, not long uh, sort of after I saw the movie. Uh, and I'll, I'll find it and I'll link it in the show notes. But it, it basically posits that Ridley Scott is going a little bit off the deep end and sort of remaking what this series is all about uh, instead of like corporate, I mean, it's still about corporate greed and it's still about corporate malfeasance, I guess, and and psychosexual bullshit and the, the true fear of the unknown, the true danger of space and the unknown. And now he's making it about creators and the things that they create. He's making it like a, a, a completely about the, the birth and death of, of new species and new creatures and what it is to be a creator. And it's very like, it's a little navel gazy because he's gonna turn 80 soon and he sure is a creator who has created things, right? But yeah. it's like this really fascinating read on like 
Now he's making these movies that are weird fucking body horror and and have 60s sci-fi questions with massive fucking budgets. But really he's making it like this very bizarre thing about like fathers and mothers, creators, like and and, and hmm. new forms of life and what that means to create new forms of life, which is fascinating, actually. So I I am all in favor. I want him to run all the way. Like, do it, buddy. Like, please. This is a, I would rather watch this, even if it's kind of fucking garbage for like a third of these running times. Like, I would rather watch this over any super polished, you know, like. I'm with you there. Um, yeah. His movies, even the kind of weak ones, still like have a character to them yes. that like is distinctive in a way that, you know, your your Marvel factory does not, right? Yeah. Like, the, the there are so many films now that feel like, polished and focus tested and like kind of soulless yes and i i do and i think the thing that i get a little anxious about and it's possible like i just am not aware of like who this who the upcoming generation will be that can do this uh but i'm also just not sure it's still the same industry that allows for this but like people will still give ridley scott ridiculous amounts of money to do whatever he wants and increasingly, it sort of seems like what he wants is to not do the thing that people are expecting, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? No. Oh, a plane. No, it's somebody mowing their fucking lawn. Oh, God. So we're going to have to wrap this up. But anyway. Yeah, so the thing with Ridley Scott is like, People still give him a ton, a ton of money to kind of do whatever the hell he wants, and it's not the thing that um, people are necessarily asking him for, right? Yeah. So it, it's kind of the. I, I think I saw this, uh, you know, Carolyn Petit linking to to an article about Miami Vice, sure, and uh, Michael Mann's like film version of Miami Vice, which yeah. is very much like almost a reductio ad absurdum of like a Michael Mann movie. <laughs> and it's kind of this like, I'm just not giving you the movie you want anymore. Like, I'm bored with making movies that are just like Miami Vice. I'm bored with like movies that are like Thief. Instead, I'm going to push this as far as I possibly can. If that frustrates you, tough shit. Yeah. Yeah, I... I totally get that. I don't know. It's 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 similar to the way I feel about the, the Wachowski sisters, where I like most of the bullshit that they make, even if some of it is such bullshit. Like, I love Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> it is space fucking garbage, but I love it. And sometimes I just appreciate weirdness on that scale. Insofar as it still exists at all in this fucking era of, of the Hollywood factory film, you know? I mean, I also would really love uh, more movies like Moon and other like smaller sci-fi yeah, things sure. that are definitely weird and interesting and different. I believe me, I, I I want twenty of those, and you could have twenty of those for you know uh, the budget of of Alien Covenant. But yeah, I, I guess nobody's actually asking me, so <laughs> that's fine. Right. Uh, but yeah, complicated feelings about Alien Covenant, but. Can't wait to see it again and continue watching whatever the fuck this becomes, basically. Uh, so I think with that, and on that wonderful note, it's probably time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. 
You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you listening and super appreciate it if you would tell your friends, your androids, your weird lovers on a space station, whoever it is that you think might enjoy the show, it helps us out so, so much. Uh, word of mouth really, really is kind of our, our, main, uh, our main feature. And also, if you could go ahead and take a second to rate us on iTunes. That helps us out. We really appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends.